So, my name's Tim. Timmy, late for dinner, whatever you want to call me. (laughs) I'm one of the pastors here, and we're continuing our study in the Gospel of Mark. So, last week, we came back into our study of the Gospel of Mark, and before that, it had been a minute since we had been there. So, today, we're continuing in Mark chapter 4, and we're going to end up in verses 30 through 34, but I feel like it might be good to have a little bit of a review. Because the last time we really covered some of the stuff that we're going to talk about today and the context of the subject matter that we're talking about today uh, has been like three months ago. And we started this series in like February, which is really only seven months away, but it's like, you know, (laughs) like 50 years away. And there's all this stuff in our minds that have come between February and now. It's always good to have a refresher, right? And it's always good to be consistently plowing in the same direction because the Word of God matters. Amen? So a review is good because a clear mind about the Word is going to lead us to greater obedience. I love, love, love churches whenever they're preaching through a book of the Bible. Even though you can get in the middle and be like, man, we're on like Psalm 97 and we've been preaching this for a long time. There's, there's a beautiful truth that you're proclaiming about just going to the next verse over and over and over. It says God's word matters, and we trust God's word to be speaking into our lives and speaking into right where we are without trying to engineer the situation, right? So it reminds me of a story of a preacher in the 1500s. His name was John Calvin, and he had a really um, faithful ministry of preaching, teaching, and studying God's word. So he had a group of folks Uh, listening to his teaching and and being a part of his ministry in Geneva in the 1500s. He had gathered a following, and they were meeting every day for a sermon. (laughs) Isn't that wild? So they would come, and they would sit at the feet of John Calvin, and they would listen to him teach. And years and years into this, some turmoil happened in Geneva. It's kind of a long story, because he was like a pastor of a really big church in Geneva, and he was also the mayor of Geneva, and he had a lot of overlapping responsibilities, but the short version is controversy happened, and they ran him out of town. All of a sudden, the pastor is in exile um, in a different position in France for over two years, and mission drift happens. Uh, People try to keep things going, but it just feels like like a headless kind of thing. So politically, Geneva is kind of like wandering. The church is making the best of it, But for over two years, their pastor is out of town, and they don't know if he's even coming back. So he did. Uh, He found a wife while he was out, which is always nice. And so they ride back in triumphantly, and everybody welcomes him back in. Everyone's so excited. And after more than two years, the people gather for that daily sermon, and he just says, okay, where were we? And more than two years later, he just began to preach the very next verse that he would have been preaching the following week anyway. And that sort of thing demonstrates a sort of trust in the word of God that the Lord wants us to carry with us through our entire life. So, because we've been doing that, let's review a little bit. So Mark chapter four, there are a lot of things that work together to create an overarching message. There are a number of parables that we've been covering that all have kind of an overarching message. And the message of those parables simply is this. Being a Christian means that you hear and believe the truth. So that's kind of like the overview of the whole chapter. 
is that being a Christian means that you both hear the truth and you believe it. So you don't just hear it like you hear the professor sometimes, but you hear it and you receive it. You hear it and you believe it. You hear it and you long to obey what has come into your heart and your mind. So if you've got your Bibles and you're already in Mark chapter 4, look at verse 9, which will not be on the screens or anything. I'm just going to jump around while we're reviewing. So Mark chapter 4 verse 9 says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And then down in verse 23, you'll see Jesus saying the same thing. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And I think that's an important thing to note. Sometimes you're just like, yep, that's a Bible phrase. It becomes rote, you move on. It feels like filler language sometimes. But it's important to see that Jesus is saying that partially because, by definition, not everybody has ears to hear. Not everybody gets it. Not everyone understands divine truth. And then past that, definitely not everybody is embracing and loving the truth that they're hearing. But true believers hear the word and believe it. They hear, and that hearing leads to belief that overflows in obedience. So it's as if he's saying, all right, he with ears to hear, in that sense, I'm talking to you. So what happened to each and every one of us when we became a Christian is that God opened our spiritual ears, right? Do you ever remember a time whenever you maybe went to church or you went to like an outreach event or something like that and you heard the preacher, but one, you either didn't understand what in the world he was talking about or two, you didn't really care. Have y'all ever been, you don't have to raise your hand. That's kind of embarrassing. If you want to raise your hand, <laughs> like it happens. We, we hear preaching and sometimes we either say, huh? Or we say, I get it. My heart just does not care about that. And you never say that out loud. That's impolite, but that's where we are. But at salvation, God opens those spiritual ears. I can remember growing up in the Methodist church and hearing sermons that were faithful to the gospel. There were faithful people preaching the gospel in the Methodist church. I remember going to a Billy Graham crusade, sitting in the nosebleeds of the stadium in Florida, honestly, looking through binoculars at Billy Graham, who was already 80-something, like preaching the gospel faithfully. And you could hear a pin drop in the whole, in the whole stadium because there was just reverence for Billy Graham preaching. But I can remember thinking, I would never want his job. What a boring thing to do. Billy Graham, just why does he even want to do that? Because the Spirit had not opened my ears. The Spirit had not made me alive. And so in our flesh, each and every one of us may smile at the preacher and may try to write some notes down even, but without our spiritual ears being open, it's just not going to happen. We're still dead without that. So you hear it, and you get it, and you understand it if you're a true believer. Now notice in verse 24, if you got it open, Jesus says this phrase, pay attention to what you hear. Literally, this phrase in the original language means be seeing what you're hearing, which is kind of weird. And so it's hard to translate the sense of what they're saying, but they're saying really understand the words of Jesus in a way that you're almost visualizing 
the things that he's saying. Really strive to grasp and consider carefully the words of this parable. So he's calling out for people that can hear to open their ears and, and to hear. And so how do we hear the Lord? I think that's a good frame to look at Mark chapter 4 through. How are we listening to the Lord? You know, it's hard to listen, right? Probably hard to listen right now sometimes, especially the longer a sermon goes. Listening is a discipline. Listening is an art. Listening is a miracle sometimes. But as we listen to the Lord, there are things to keep in mind. And I just want to run through four of them really quick before we jump into the text, because I think each of the parables that Jesus is showing us in this chapter is showing us a different way in which we listen to the Lord. So the first one, the parable of the soils, shows us that we need to be listening to the Lord receptively, listening and receiving the truth. So I don't know if y'all remember, but the parable of the soils had four different kinds of soils, but really there were only two. There were three kinds in the beginning that were all unreceptive in different ways. Even with the appearance of receiving the word, they were all ultimately unreceptive. And then that last fertile soil uh, produced 30, 60, 100 fold. So we really only have two types of soil. Are you hearing and responding to the word or is something else choking out or stealing the fruit of the word? So it boils down to that. We receive and we listen to God receptively. So that's the parable of the soils. Next after that, we listen to the Lord with obedience. We listen obediently. It's verses 21 through 25, whenever he talked about the parable of the lampstand. Y'all know the song, right? This little light of mine, I'm gonna let it. And then there's like, hide it under a... What, what is a bushel? Does anybody know what a bushel is? It's like, um, yeah. It's a book that is on the Uh uh-uh. like like I yeah, I think I do. Yeah, it's like in the story, so that's how mm-hmm. that's the version when you dig into it. Right. And then that's and then the troll mm-hmm. stuff out of the bush. <laughs> that's how it is. Right. So don't hide the light. He says, if you have the word, if your spiritual ears are open to the Lord, then there's a radiant nature to the truth being in your heart. You'll know it. You'll see it. You'll recognize it. When somebody's a real believer, you can see the truth radiating from the joy that they have and the sureness in the midst of uncertainty that they have. It's unmistakable, this sort of radiant overflow of truth and joy. And so he's saying, when that's inside of you, obediently allow that to do what the laws of physics are saying that it does, what the spiritual laws are saying that it does. This, this stuff will overflow, and people will notice. So don't stifle that. Don't cover it up. Don't be ashamed of the gospel, but obediently fill yourself with gospel truth and allow it to radiate. So we listen obediently. Third of all, we listen, and this is last week, we listen with dependence. We listen dependently. Think about um, the word mystery. 
because at the end of the day, God says, receive the word, obediently display the word, but then don't act like it all depends on you. Just be dependent on the Lord for the results of him growing the kingdom. John MacArthur puts it like this. The sphere of salvation, the reign of God over the hearts of everyone who believes, and our role in that is like a farmer who plants a seed and then goes home and goes to sleep. Charles Spurgeon says it a little bit different. He says, sometimes the most spiritual thing that you can do in your life is take a nap. Y'all already feeling that? It's 11.07 a.m. So you don't need to live your life in a panic. Spiritually speaking, if you see all of these things that may look like projects that have a million steps and their scope is so large and the fruit seems so unattainable, it's easy to work yourself into a frantic pace. The psalmist said you're eating the bread of anxious toil, but he says that's not necessary. In essence, God is saying, go to bed, plant the seeds, shine the light, take a nap. So you're not responsible for what happens. And that should fill us with wonder and awe. There's a mysterious, worship-inspiring aspect to watching the kingdom grow. We can't control any of the responses of people's hearts. Although we work hard to obey the Lord, and we show people the love of Christ, and we go out of our way, and our schedules get all out of whack, and we get all tired, and we really do, like Paul said, pour ourselves out as a drink offering. But then at the end of the day, we lay our head on the pillow knowing that the growth mysteriously and beautifully comes from God. Amen? So we listen with dependence. And then finally, we listen to the Lord confidently. And so that's what we're talking about today. And that's where what we will talk about today fits into the last three weeks of study that we've had stretched out over a couple months. So hopefully you're caught up. If not, put your seatbelt on. <laughs> We're like shifting in the high gear. So we can trust and listen to the Lord with confidence. Uh, so only two points for today. It's a little deceptive. The second point has like 21 things under it, but we're going to go <laughs> 90 miles an hour, I promise. So the very first thing that we're going to talk about today is that we can trust God's word. We can trust God's word. And the main point, if you don't get anything else, if your kid freaks out, if your phone blows up, here's the main point of what we're talking about today. God is redeeming the world, even if we can't see evidence on demand. So God is doing his work, redeeming the world, even if we can't see the evidence right now. That's a hard truth, but I hope that you're really encouraged whenever you can see the beauty of what God's saying. So the first point here, we can trust in God's word. That gets us to our text for today. So let's turn to Mark chapter 4 and go down to the verse 30. Verse 30. Jesus says this, he says, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It's like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants. And it puts out large branches so that even the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. 
So that's our focus for today. Even the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. Let's just pray for a second. God, we thank you for words and parables from the Lord that can help us and encourage us to keep putting one foot in front of the other with confidence. Lord, help us to see clearly and and to hear what you want us to hear today. In your name, amen. So the parable of the mustard seed is a beautiful image, and it's meant to inspire confidence in living the Christian life. God's got this. This is the mission of God. This is not the mission of every single Christian, and we hope that it works out. We are, I'm getting ahead of myself. So the mustard seed is a beautiful, beautiful picture of God's sovereignty and his dependability. So let's dig into what it actually means. He's trying to show us what the kingdom of God is like. He says the kingdom is like this little bitty seed that falls into the ground, and then when that little bitty seed grows up, it becomes the biggest thing in your whole garden. So this is what I'm calling the Oprah part of the sermon. Everybody look under your chairs. (laughs) Honestly, there's something, if it's not under your chair, it's probably to your left or right, maybe in front of you. And so down in there probably just looks like some dirt that's, and a little ramekin. But if you'll open that up, you can shake it around, you can look at them, you can open it up and maybe like put one in between your fingers, something like that. That is a mustard seed. And I don't know if you've ever seen one, sometimes people use them in cooking, but this is what a mustard seed looks like. It's from, and this is actually the kind of mustard, yeah, don't eat it. (laughs) Anthony's like trying to eat it. So, so like, this is actually the, from the black mustard family, which is thought to be the, the species of mustard plant that Jesus was referring to. It grows in the Middle East natively. And so just look at how small this is and think this is a seed that produces a lot of fruit. It really does. Um, it takes 15,000 mustard seeds to weigh one ounce. Isn't that crazy? 15,000 mustard seeds only weigh one ounce. So in the time of Christ, they, they knew about smaller things and they knew about smaller seeds, but it was kind of proverbial language whenever he said, consider the mustard seed, because in a, in a manner of speaking, that was just like the shorthand version of saying, this is the smallest thing I can think of. It's like a couple grains of sand almost. And that thing when sown in the ground, becomes this picture right here. Look at this picture of uh, what this guy's mustard seed grew into. Just for scale, that, that's a pretty tall guy. I think he's like, well, not too tall, maybe like 5'10", something like that. But that's, that's honestly, that's a mustard plant. And so this is the kind of scale that Jesus is talking about. So look down at that seed, run it between your fingers, shake it around, and just then look back up at this picture how many of those seeds do you think could fit in a plant like that? I'd say millions and millions of times bigger than the seed that's sown in the ground. Now let's go back to this parable and keep that and, and let that pique your imagination. Uh, let's, let's say, why is Jesus telling this story in the first place? Uh, his disciples and those who are following him were saying, okay, we really have heard the word. We really have listened. We've received the word. 
we're letting our light shine, we're walking with you, and we understand that at the end of the day, all the results aren't up to us. We get that. We, we're all in. We're, we're going with you. But where are you going with this, Jesus? The disciples needed some perspective. They didn't know what Jesus' plans were for the gospel message. They couldn't see it. They didn't have a lot of context. Things didn't make a lot of sense to them yet. They were maybe piecing some of the very first things together, but maybe some of the freshest things in their minds were the constant rejections by the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. They see other people coming out of curiosity, and then they see folks that really are taking the time to listen are turning around and walking away. And they say, even if I choose to continue following this guy, what's your plan for this, Jesus? And so here's where it gets beautiful. This is where I want to kind of like shift down a gear and say preaching and listening to preaching is an act of worship. And when God asks us to open the Bible, he invites us into an experience of worship, of knowing how good he is and remembering how good he is and being in awe of his beauty. When we open the Bible, when we listen to preaching, it's not necessarily primarily to learn something. Although learning is important, especially from God's word, he invites us in whenever we open the book to love him more, to appreciate him more, to worship him more deeply. And so when they say, where's this going, Jesus? He, in essence, by showing the mustard seed and the, and the tree is saying, this is going to be massive. This is going to grow at a pace that maybe you don't understand, but at a proportion that is completely mind-blowing, completely out of proportion to the size of the obedience that he calls you to and then empowers you for. The kingdom is going to be growing and branching out in ways that are completely unpredictable and in ways that will ultimately make people say only God could have done a work so massive and sustainable. So when we look at the mustard seed, God reminds us that he is single-handedly bringing his promises to pass. Amen? Has he ever gone bad on a promise? Has he ever been unfaithful? And when we look at the mustard seed, we can remember that he's the one empowering that growth. And that level of trustworthiness is what we can count on as we continue to obey. So he has a plan that we can trust for our individual holiness. So Philippians 1.6 shows us, it says, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Jesus Christ. So on an individual level, whenever we think about the growth of the mustard seed, we can think, Lord, when you made me a Christian, I was so incredibly far away from you. My heart wanted things that I don't even want to say out loud anymore. I, I had a posture toward you and maybe even your church that I'm ashamed to even talk about, but you've been growing me. And even where I am right now with the growth that I can celebrate, I look at the scriptures and I, and I see that you're going to make me into the image of God. You're going to bring me into the fullness of Christ. And I say, Lord, how are you going to get there? That's a long way. How are you going to bridge all of these gaps that, if I'm honest with myself, seem impassable? How are you even going to get it done in my lifetime? 
And Jesus says, trust me. I promise, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. Not today, not in five minutes, maybe not even whenever you think you might need it. But he promises that on the day of Jesus, when we stand face to face, that he will have finished his work. And we can take great comfort in that. Even if today we say, I have real pain in my life because I'm not there yet. Sometimes we say, life's hard, but we're not home yet. Sometimes life is hard for reasons we can't even control. But sometimes, if we're honest, life is hard for reasons that we can control and we're just knuckleheads. We just haven't done it right. We just did that thing again. And we told ourselves we wouldn't do that again. And we made a promise to God that we would try as hard as we could to not do that again. And here we are. And Jesus says, I promise, apart from you and your work, but mysteriously in cooperation with your obedience, I will bring that work to completion. So individually, we can trust him to do that. And then at the, the level of the kingdom, he promises to spread the gospel too. Look at Matthew chapter 24, verse 14. Jesus says, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. That's not a suggestion. That's not one of those aspirational statements that people make at like quarterly meetings at businesses or something. And then they have the footnote that says, this is a forward-looking statement. Don't trust anything that actually happens on this conference call. Like, that's not this. This is saying the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world and then the end will come. So Jesus is promising to ensure gospel proclamation to the ends of the earth, and then he is promising to single-handedly redeem the world at the end of that. And he's saying, look at that seed and trust that I can get it done. It's like we have a percussion session in here now. It's great. It's like a bunch of maracas. I love it, whatever keeps you in. So, so notice before we move on, the reference to the birds nesting in the branches of the mustard tree. I, I think this is uh, encouraging to me to see that it's an allusion to an Old Testament prophecy. So in Ezekiel chapter 17, there's a messianic prophecy that says that under the rule of the Messiah, the nations will be saved, and the nations are pictured as birds coming to lodge in a tree of blessing. Ezekiel says, the kingdom of God will sprout up like a tree and it will grow into something that's so secure and so far reaching that the nations will come and roost in it and they'll find security and they'll find residence in the tree of God's blessing. And that's a picture of where God is bringing the kingdom. And so many scholars see this as an allusion to God bringing the nations to himself. When this tiny mustard seed goes into the ground, and dies and gives up its life, then we see something happening that brings the ends of the earth into the kingdom. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. He's saying, I am spreading the kingdom single-handedly. So point number one, we can trust God's word. When he says it, it'll happen. But also, point number two, we can trace God's hand. So this is a, this is a, a portion, that I just, I want this to be encouraging to you, and I want this to give you a sense of wonder that God has been working in the world 
since the beginning. And God's faithfulness in the past can propel us toward living faithfully and trusting him right now and tomorrow. So when the disciples heard the parable of the mustard seed, they were confused and they didn't have a lot of information. They, they had Old Testament faithfulness to look back on and to be thankful for, but we have an even broader knowledge and awareness of how good God has been throughout history. And so I just wanted to take some time and help us reflect on how God has been making good on this promise and how we're a part of a giant global kingdom that God has been building. So I, I want to read you some things. I want to show you kind of like a warp speed history lesson that if you don't get all of it, that's okay. But just sit back and allow this to say, since the beginning, God has been doing all the work. And God has been working in places where it just seemed impossible. Just look at the power of God in this. It'll be on the screen so that you can kind of follow along. So keep up. We're going to go fast. So in AD 40, you can read about it in Acts 15, they had a council in Jerusalem where folks got together and decided that the gospel could be proclaimed to folks that were not Jewish. It was a turning point in the history of early Christianity when they said this gospel can and should be proclaimed outside of people that are ethnically and religiously Jewish. And so because of that decision, they said, all right, let's make it happen. Non-Jewish folks are included in this mission. So AD 40, Jerusalem happens. In 42, Mark, the writer of this book, goes to Egypt and he proclaims the gospel to the Egyptians and the first converts are had there. In AD 49, Paul heads to Turkey. Two years later, he heads to Greece. The year after that, in AD 52, there are reports in church history of Thomas heading to India and bringing the gospel for the first time. In 54, Paul heads on his third missionary journey and shares the gospel with those who still haven't heard it, in a sense, filling in some of the geographical gaps in the Mediterranean region. We're going to skip ahead to AD 174, when the first Christians get reported in Austria. So we're pushing into the mainland of Europe here. And in 280, the first non-urban rural congregations are reported in northern Italy. So up until 280, Christianity was largely an urban religion. And now we're seeing rural churches beginning to pop up. In 350, just 350 years after the birth of Christ approximately, 31.5 million people or 53% of the Roman Empire make professions of faith in Christ. And we know that there are some political complications to that, but we see massive spread happening from Galilee to the ends of the Roman Empire, which was incredibly dominant and influential in its day. So 432, St. Patrick headed to Ireland and began to share the gospel and spread it there. In 596, Gregory the Great sent Augustine and a team of missionaries to what is now England, and he reintroduced the gospel, which had been introduced there and had since died out. These missionaries settled in Canterbury, and within a year had baptized 10,000 people. In 635, the first Christian missionaries were reported to arrive in China. In 740, monks from Ireland, from the previous work, 
reached the shores of Iceland. In 900, missionaries reached Norway. By the year 1200, the Bible was available in 22 different languages. And in 1498, Christians began to be reported in numbers in India. In 1554, there were 1,500 converts to Christianity reported in what is now known as Thailand. In 1630, there was an attempt made in El Paso to establish a a mission to the Native Americans. And in 1743, a man named David Brainerd gave his life to ministering to Native Americans as well. In 1845, a ministry called the Southern Baptist Convention was founded. And one of the aims of the Southern Baptist Convention at its founding was to enable missions to happen among a group of interdependent churches. They got together with one of the main aims being to strategically spread the gospel and to work together to that end. In 1959, we're getting close, Cross Lanes, not Cross Lasness. <laughs> I had a little typo there. In 1959, in a town called Cross Lanes, West Virginia, which is pretty much Charleston, West Virginia. A group of people got together and how did they put it? They had a vision to make a difference for the kingdom. That's how they, that's how they wrote it out. And they started a church called Cross Lanes Baptist Church. And since 1959, Cross Lanes has been involved in training up pastors for the ministry and sending out church upon church upon church throughout the West Virginia area, and even a couple beyond that. And one of the folks that came out of that church, Cross Lanes Baptist, you fixed it, that's great, was a man named Jacob Atchley. He planted a church in Martinsburg, West Virginia in 2009. He looked at the area of Martinsburg, and he noticed that this region seemed to overlap two different cultural contexts in a sense. He saw the 81 corridor, with its industry, its rich history, its tight-knit Winchester, Martinsburg, Hagerstown, Chambersburg, that identity. But then he saw Martinsburg overlapping with the D.C. area, which was just always ever-expanding. He saw that this town, in the midst of this largely industrial corridor, is linked up to D.C. through this commuter line. And he said, what could God do if churches began to pop up along every stop of this line. And these folks that are moving out across the Potomac for these low property values, who are stretching that dollar and commuting longer and longer and longer, who are dealing with it, with whether they admit it or not, maybe a sense of what sociologists call crowded loneliness, interacting with people after people after people, but at the end of the day, being a transplant that doesn't have anybody to watch their kids, not having valuable relationships, even though they're around tons of people all the time. He saw all of that, and he felt a burden to start a church that would proclaim the gospel and reach those far from God. That's how he put it. He also had a burden that once that gospel was preached, that that gospel would create family for people that didn't have any bio family here at all. And so in 2009, he set out to do that. And in 2017, Pastor Josh felt a similar call. He wanted to plant this church right here so that it could be filled with ordinary people that live in community and also so that we could be a people that help each other find and follow Jesus. So he put his hand to the plow in 2017. He started meeting in a member's basement the next year with a core group of people 
And in 2019, we began doing ministry here because we were sent out from the church at Martinsburg. So I hope that you can see from the planting of this seed, from the parable of the mustard seed, God's faithfulness to bring that trunk up and to have these things branching off and how we're in a long line of people that have showcased God's faithfulness and a long, long line of people that probably had a lot of doubts and that probably walked a really, really long road. And each entry in this, each link in this chain, each branch of this plant probably lived and obeyed in lots of ways where they couldn't see the next step. And they needed to hear from the Lord and trust that he was going to provide, just like he did for the last people and the people before that. So we see all of that, and we say, wow, it makes you feel small. Well, it's so much smaller than that, because the mission is so much greater than that. The Lord wants our eyes to the last day. The, the Lord wants us to see what he's preparing for us and what eternity will look like. And we're just another branch in the midst of this plant that's going to grow even larger as we see missionaries in, in all different parts of the earth. We're reminded that all of this work and all of this worship and obedience points us toward Revelation chapter 7. And this is where we're going to land the plane. This is where the scriptures point us to. This is what eternity will look like, a picture of it. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 12. This is what the full-grown tree looks like. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Get your mustard seeds back out. You still got them? Shake them up if you got them. There we go. So as you look at these, that's like the new round of applause. That's nice. <laughs> so as you look at these things and you think of the scale of this, with our feeble obedience, with our imperfect obedience, think about when you try to obey God the best you can, and then you end up at the end of the day saying, I could have done this, I could have done that, I could have done this. I don't know how God's going to use this because look at all these holes in my obedience. When you look at this seed, you remember the power. John Calvin commented on this parable in this way. He said, The Lord opens his reign with a feeble and despicable commencement for this express purpose, that his power may be more fully illustrated by its unexpected progress. Paul put it a little different in 2 Corinthians. He said, your grace is sufficient for me, for your power is perfected in my weakness. His power shines all the more transparently uh, when it shines through our imperfect obedience. There is no other explanation 
for the growth of the kingdom in your own heart, in your own home, in East Asian contexts, there is no other explanation for the growth of the kingdom other than it's got to be God's word. We can't fake this stuff. God's been so faithful, and we can trust that for the next step.